Thanks, Jonathan, and uh, evening all. So we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 2 for our reading uh, this evening, verses 4 through to 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, (coughs) and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Amen. May God's word touch our hearts. So tonight uh, we're we're going to be thinking from this passage about the the subject of what I've called life life in paradise. I think think we struggle to grasp the whole concept uh, and idea of, of paradise. You know, living as we do in our world that's full of such, you know, difficulty wars and conflicts and, and, and trouble. Um, I think the, the nearest we get to it is, you know, when we are um, distracted and we see, uh, you know, sites of a Caribbean island and palm trees and, you know, beaches, and we think that's, that's life in paradise. Or, um, but we know if you've watched the television program that, that death takes place in paradise as well. So it's, it's difficult for us sometimes to just really grasp the whole concept of, of paradise as we have it here, you know, in these early chapters, the paradise that, that Adam found himself in, what life was actually like, what he experienced it in a, in a situation where there was just no, none of the things that are just part and parcel of our everyday life, all the, the stresses and tragedies and, and conflicts and pain that are just part of our world, none of that was there uh, in this paradise. 
Now, a passage like this is, is a crucial thing for us. We've been learning how these early chapters are so foundational to how the rest of the Bible is then developed. Because what we're really learning here is about where we came from and, and who we essentially are as human beings. I always find that a wee bit kind of amusing when, you know, the news comes on from time to time and we're told about the latest, you know, NASA probe or rocket that's sent up to Mars or to some asteroid or whatever to try and get some rocks back that will give us some scientific info about where we came from and the origins of life. Now, obviously, these things are helpful, but we're opening the book of God tonight. You know, this is the revelation from God that does give us insight as to who we actually are and where we came from and why we can understand how our world is as it is. And so this is an enormously helpful thing. Now, let me just point out a few things as part of the general introduction. First of all, from verse 4, where it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Um, now, clearly there has been an account already of creation. But when he says, these are the generations, what, what he's actually meaning is, here is a little bit more detail. Uh, here is the history of the whole thing. This is the account, and, and he fills in the detail from the general big picture that already has been mentioned in, in chapter, uh, chapter number one. Um, and, and that generation, the history as it proceeds from here, uh, it includes life in paradise, but it also is going to describe death in paradise and the, and the fall um, as well. And just as a kind of practical point from, from this statement here, the generations, um, God is in the detail. You know, we, we, we have the big picture of God's purposes in, in Scripture. But, you know, it's an enormously reassuring thing for us to, to, to understand that God is in the details as well, you know. Sometimes we're told when we read documents, you know, be very careful. You know, the devil is in the detail. Uh, but, but God is in the detail. And in the details of all of our lives, you know, the, the, what to us might seem small things, the circumstances, the, the personal issues and problems, God is in all of that. You know, as the psalmist puts it, our times are, are in his hands. And, and for all of us, that, that is something to grasp and to be reassured with. The second point I wanted to just make here in the kind of general introduction um, in verse 4 is that it says that um, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, you'll notice quite a number of times down through the verses that we read that that is the title that is given to God. And it's very interesting. He's referred to as the Lord God. Now, what, is actually, what, what that actually is, is a combination of two of the names of God. Now, you've got to remember, of course, that the book of Genesis was as part of the Pentateuch. It was written under God's inspiration by Moses. And it was delivered initially 
the first readers were the children of Israel at the time. And so what he's doing here is he uses the name for God, Elohim, which means the creator God. Now that's, of course, what we understand. This is how God is presented. God is described to us as the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator God. But he also is the Lord God. And the word for Lord is the word Jehovah, Yahweh, the personal name of God. The God that Moses learned about at the burning bush. Jehovah that he he revealed to the people of Israel. The Lord who was going to come into a relationship with them, who would make a covenant with them. He would be their God. They would be his people. And so he puts both of these things together and he says, it is the Lord God, the creator who is also the God who enters into relationship with his people. He is the one that is being presented here. And of course, this is, this is an important point because when we start to understand and read our Bibles, we realize that, yes, it's written to me, but fundamentally it's about God. You know, and center and foremost, we have to look for God being revealed and to understand what he is like. And there is a there is an expanding revelation of God until we come to see God in his fullness in the face of Jesus Christ. God manifest in the flesh. And so the Lord God is, is revealed. Now, there are two main points that I want to kind of uh, point out to you here. And uh, the first one is uh, the touch of the Lord God. And then secondly, uh, the task from uh, the Lord God. So, as, as we think about the Lord God's touch, we're looking mainly at verse verse 7 here. And this is additional, extra detail and information that's given that we haven't had so far as, um, regarding the creation um, of, of, of Adam. Interesting to notice, by the way, that the, the Hebrew word, the root word for Adam, is the same as the word for man, and is the same as the word for ground, or red earth. All three have the same Hebrew root. And so you can understand why he's going to be called Adam, because he's made out of red earth. He's made from the dust. And so... What we have here is a tremendous picture of uh, a personal and uh, an intimate design and formation of Adam that is different from anything that has taken place as far as creation up until this point. You know, God said, let there be light. God said, God said. But but this is different. And you, you can just kind of imagine God kneeling down on the ground and, and forming uh, from the dust carefully this man who is fearfully and wonderfully going to, going to form. You can see him forming the contours of his face, the size of his nose, um, what his hands are going to be like. You can understand him 
intricately designing and, and creating the, the whole physiology, you know, the circulatory system, you know, his neuroanatomy, how everything fits together. And God spends time doing all of that, even forming the smaller things, molecular, submolecular level, DNA. All of that is part of what happens here as God personally and intimately from the dust of the ground carefully does this. And of course, we were reminded a couple of weeks ago that every new conception of a child is a new creation by God. And God still creates individually and personally every day of the week new creations. And I, you know, the, the point I think that is good to take from that is that Adam was exactly the way that God meant him to be. He specifically made him that way as he was. And that is true for every single one of us. God has made us exactly how he wanted us. Now, at times we might not like the color of our hair, you know, or how high we stand or any number of things. But I think when we understand that God personally has designed and created every one of us in our kind of image-consumed society, you know, and world that we live in, I think it helps us to know that when God made me and when God made you, he broke the mold. You know, you're unique. You're the only one of a kind, and you are exactly the way you're meant to be. And I think it's very helpful to understand and to celebrate, if you like, that fact. Now, when he is described in verse 7 as being formed from the dust of the ground, I think at this stage there are even little hints here of of how the, the generations, of how the account, of how the history of mankind now is going to develop. Now, the, the reason I say that is, first of all, if you look at verse 5, where, where things are being described, and it says, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. Now, again, you think of the first hearers in Moses' day. They knew what rain was. And this point had to be made to them, that at this stage no rain. You know, things were watered in a different way, as we, as we found from the reading. Rain didn't start until Noah's day, the judgment that came with the deluge at that time. So there's this little hint of the problems that are going to be. There wasn't any rain at this point. And then the whole idea of, of the dust is going to make... I mean, maybe even at that point, when they had their funeral services, they used the same kind of formula that sometimes we use, because it is from chapter 3. If you turn over to chapter 3, verse 19, this is, this is after the fall. This is, this is death in paradise now. Uh, and this is what he says on that occasion to, to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Words that are still said today. Dust thou art, and dust you shall return. 
just in case I forget to say it later on, when we talk about his soul, famous words of, I think it was Lord Tennyson, the poet, you know, file this one away. Dust thou art, to dust returneth, was not written of the soul. It was written of his body, that it returns to dust. Now, the reason I'm going to just develop this one a wee bit is because, again, we find that there are connections from this passage right through to our New Testament. You remember the big point that we've made already is you cannot take these chapters in isolation. They are integral to the whole of the Bible. They're, They're all connected together. They are the foundations. And this point here is a foundational point. So, with that in mind, can I ask you, keep your finger on the page, obviously, but can I ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15? Uh, just so that I, I show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and at verse 47. Actually, the, first, the few verses before it are part of the same thing, but just for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now this is a tremendous point that has been made Adam is mentioned here in this passage, as he is elsewhere, book of Romans chapter 5. So if you disregard Adam, you know, as being an actual person, then you've got to kick out Romans, you've got to kick out Corinthians as well. The whole thing is joined up. It's a joined up message. And the point that he's making here is this, is that it's about the resurrection body. He's talking about that. The truth of resurrection for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. What will happen when the Lord returns? That great hope of every believer that Christ comes. And what will be the experience of every believer? Is it, is it just dust? He says, well, you know, you're a believer now. And that means that you just haven't borne the image of the first man, of Adam, of the man of dust. You will bear the image of the man of heaven, of Christ. And so he's saying this, that ultimately, you know, as far as Christ is concerned, there's a new order. And he is the man from heaven, not from the dust. And as far as we're concerned, the dust is not the end. What a tremendous hope that we will bear the image of the man who is from heaven. What a tremendous point that Paul, the great apostle, takes and expands upon, really, from the starting point of Genesis chapter 2. So so dust is mentioned. But there's something else, because at that point, God is still bending over the kind of inanimate structure of, of the physical Adam. Something else is now about to happen. Despite everything that's been formed, something else needs to happen. And it's the fact that God now bends over 
and he blows the breath of life, the breath of God into Adam's nostrils. And at that stage, he becomes a living creation, a living creature, a living soul. He comes alive. Now, we know that he's made in the image of God and that this sets him apart, makes him distinctive from everything else that has been created. The highest order of animal, completely different from Adam. He becomes a living soul. Now, as far as that is concerned, that means that he has the ability and he has the capacity to do things that animals can't do. That he has the ability to relate to God, to have fellowship with God. God will walk with Adam in the garden. God will commune with Adam. Adam will worship his creator. And these are still things that set us apart from any animal. And You know, some people debate this, and I'm going to give you a couple of uh, references that will, you know, feed or inform your thoughts on this as to whether man is what we might call a tripartite or a bipartite being. What I mean by that is body, soul, and spirit. Some people will think, well, maybe soul and spirit are interchangeable, and it just refers to the kind of non-physical part of humanity. But for instance, if you were to look at um, the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is just one example um, of this, uh, you'll read this in chapter 5, verse 23. Um, May your whole spirit and soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Mary prays after the angel has uh, told her about the birth, um, she says, uh, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior perhaps used interchangeably. So the first reference was the tripartite. Some would say the second reference maybe just means that two of them are interchangeable. But irrespective of that, man is different. Man lives eternally. The body might go to the dust, but the soul lives on. So let me just remind you of certain verses Uh, from Scripture that talks about the eternal soul that we all possess. You know, Jesus said, didn't he, that what shall it profit a person, even although they gain the whole world, and yet they lose their soul? There is the possibility that some people, they can lose their soul, their soul can be lost. He also said, when he uh, recounted the parable of the of the rich fool, the man who said, "Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, tomorrow we die." You fool! Tonight your soul will be required of you, and then whose shall all these things be? 
The need to concentrate on his soul rather than on the material side of life which he had amassed. And then there's the famous verse from the Old Testament. No man can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for his soul. For the soul is costly. It's of great price. We can't redeem our souls. That's where the work of Christ comes in. The great redemption. Christ comes to to rescue the souls of men and women that are lost in their sin. And this is the point that's being made. Adam is more than just an animal, a higher class of animal. God breathes personally in a way that he does to no one else the life. And he becomes a living soul. And here is something that that is so important in our day and age for us to emphasize the requirement of us paying attention to our souls. I can remember from when I was a little boy, some preachers used to say, they used to say, to lose your wealth is much. To lose your health is more. To lose your soul is such a loss that nothing can restore the importance of learning who we are and what we are, where we came from, from the hand of God with an eternal, never-dying soul that we need to address. And that is why we preach the gospel. We need to preach the gospel that people will experience the salvation from Christ of their soul. Now, let's leave that. And just second point's not as long as this first point, but we're we're going to go on to the second one now, uh, which is the idea of not just the touch of the Lord God, but the task uh, from the Lord. I should say before we come to that, um, I mean, it's a great thing, this point about the Lord God touching our lives. I mean, you think that was marvelous what happened to Adam, to feel the breath of God on his face and the touch of God upon his life. You know, brothers and sisters, all of us who know Christ as Savior, we all experience the touch of God upon our lives in a a grander way than this, grander than physical creation. It's the touch of God as far as salvation is concerned and of redeeming us and of making us new people. What a wonderful, powerful, tender concept that is that the touch of Christ it's upon our lives as we know him as, as Savior. But we now, we now come to this idea of the, the task that God gave to him. And so he's taken, um, verse 8, he's taken to a garden. Now, the garden is in Eden. It's not actually the garden of Eden. I don't know if you noticed that. It's the garden in Eden. Eden is an area, and uh, within that area of Eden, there's a garden. And that is where he is, is placed by God. Eden means delight. And as you can see here, everything is described as being pleasant. It's described as being a paradise, although the, the rivers are mentioned, and we, you know, we kind of uh, understand some of these rivers today. Nobody really knows of course, where where Eden actually is. Um, 
paradise involved what he was tasked to do. The very, the very task that he was given, in a sense, was, was part of his experience of, of paradise. So he's, he's placed specifically by the Lord God in the garden. It says in, um, chapter, in verse 5 and verse 15, um, to work the ground. And so he was serving God. God. God placed him there and said, here's your task. This is what I want you to do. And fundamentally, therefore, what he was doing was he was serving God. What God asked him to do, he was now carrying this out. He looked upon his whole function and his purpose to serve and to glorify the God who, who made him. And, and by working the ground here, it says that he was keeping it or he was, he was taking care of it. Now, th- this is all going to change, you know, when we get to chapter 3. You know, the ground's going to change. There's going to be thistles and weeds. And it says that, you know, it's going to be arduous. It's going to be a toil. Uh, it's going to be a curse. It's, going to, it's not going to be enjoyable by the sweat of his brow, he's going to have to work the ground eventually. But, but that's not the case here. This is how things were meant to be. This is paradise. This, this was fundamentally the way it was meant to be. And as I say, we have difficulty grasping all of this because of what we experience all the time. But, but this, this was a joy for him to take care of what God had made and to serve the God who so lovingly had, had created him. Now, we've been looking at this whole idea of the task of, of work in our home groups. You know, um, with the, the, the study books have been looking at this kind of topic. And let me just remind you uh, of, of something uh, regarding that. And it's this. That if, like Adam, we have the perspective of, of seeing everything that we do as being for the God who created and loved us, it just changes our view of everything. That God has given us a task. Take care of this. Look after this for me. You know, whatever that may be, whether it's actual you know, employment that you go out to or, or just anything you do in the home, wherever that is, whatever we're involved in, if we have the perspective that I'm serving the Lord God and this is being done for him, then that just changes the way I, I view things uh, altogether. Uh, God has placed me here. This is where he wants me to be. I'm serving him here among these people in this situation. And that might be difficult and that might be tricky and it might be challenging. But if I have that kind of perspective that God has called me here and placed me here and this is what he wants me to do, it fundamentally makes things different. Now, again, let me just, you know, ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 here, just, just to make that point again. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, and at verse number 22, where it says this, Servants, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, 
fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's what was written to the the early slaves in the first century. And that's the principle that comes to us uh, from the Scriptures as well. So I started off tonight by by saying that we we hardly can imagine life uh, in paradise because of the state of our world. But I think it's right to, to end on this point. And the point is that that we will all, those of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus, we, we will all experience paradise. And paradise, that is superior to what we have here. You know, of course, you remember that that's what the Lord Jesus said to the thief, the believing thief upon the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And you just have to think again about some of the ways in which the Apostle Paul um, described his thoughts of, of, of being with Christ. He said, you know, for me to live is, is Christ and uh, to die is gain. He said, I have a desire to be with, with Christ, which is better by far to be absent from the body and to be at home and present uh, with the Lord. And this great hope is is the anchor of our soul, which is sure uh, and steadfast. And uh, I was reminded about a verse in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus and he says to them that whoever has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, to, the, to the overcomer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know? And, and, and that, that great encouragement to overcomers is, is held out to us. The, the experience of, of paradise. And the point is this, that Christ has won and has reclaimed and has redeemed significantly more than Adam ever lost. I mean, Adam lost, paradise lost. Milton's great great poem. Paradise was lost. But in Christ's great salvation, much, much more is reclaimed than Adam lost. The blessings of salvation, not just to be put in some sort of neutral, innocent state like Adam was in, but to have the the actual righteousness of Christ himself, the Son of God, imputed to us and credited to our account. That is the status of what it means to be a believer. And everything that is described in these last chapters of the book of Revelation, what heaven is like, the absence of everything tragic and curse-like, the presence of God in all its fullness. You know, that is the inheritance. That's the paradise that we ourselves have as a wonderful hope to look forward to. And the final point is this. 
there is a sense in which that anticipation is realized now, you know, and it's realized now, I think, in, in the use of the phrase that Jesus used, eternal life. Now, for a believer, of course, life is not going to be a bed of roses. There can often be great difficulties and sadnesses and tragedies. But despite all of that, he gives unto his sheep eternal life. And we will never perish. You know, eternal life, the hope of paradise. The present possession of that quality of life that Christ gives that will in one day find all of its fulfillment in paradise gained for the believer in Christ. So I trust these words will be of some help and encouragement and instruction to us as we look back to these early chapters, find out who we are, where we came from, the original intention, and all the lessons that flow from that. May God bless his words. Uh, We'll pray now and then we'll sing our our final hymn. Spot the allusion in the final hymn to Eden. Eden restored is mentioned in this final hymn. Okay. So Lord, we come with our worship. We, We think back to how you have described the origins of humanity. How that has all been lost. And yet what wonderful prospect and hope is held out for the believer in the Lord Jesus through the finished work of Christ, through the tremendous redemption that he has introduced through his death upon the cross. Lord, thank you that our souls can be saved through the precious blood of Christ. And for that great experience in reality, we give you our our thanks and pray that the encouragement of your word this week will sustain all of our hearts. As we ask in Jesus' name, amen.